So this morning, we begin a four-part series. Oh, the lights are off over there. You guys must not be, like, charismatic enough. Wave your hands. Wave your, see, wave your hands. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, oh the, the switch is off. The switch is off. Because many hands make light work, but it didn't work that time. So, oh, well. So this morning, we're starting a four-week series. It's a summer series. And uh, the four-week series we're calling um, that, oh, that, you guys are in the light now. That's right, that's right. So this four-week series we're, call, we're calling Renovation, Renovation, because we've got some renovation going on over there, and I thought, well, we've got it going on over there, we might as well have it going on inside of us, right? We can spend some time trying to renovate. So we're going to do that in four areas. The first area is spiritual growth, our spiritual life, not growth, spiritual life, I wanted to say. And our spiritual life, this morning we're talking about uh, what to do when you're bored with God. What to do when you're bored with God. Don't even tell me that you've never been bored with God, or you'll be guilty of lying too. I know that you have been bored with God before. So in case you are right now, or for when you might be, we're going to talk about what to do when you're bored with God. Next week, we're talking about hospitality, but we're going at it from the angle of how can we have an outward focus and not so much an inward focus. That's really what hospitality is, is thinking about the other better and more than thinking about ourselves. And then the third week, we're going to be talking about generosity. And then the last week, we're going to be talking about family. And the director of children's ministries for our denomination, for the Alliance, Melissa McDonald, will be with us uh, in three weeks, and she is a live wire. If you've never heard Melissa before, she's going to come and talk about family, talk about parenting, uh, and talk about kids and kids' ministry. And as a church, I think maybe she'll talk a little bit to some of our kids' workers, and uh, I can't wait for her to come. I was at an event one time, and... uh, she was there, and my, at that time, associate pastor and I got her in a, in a room with our microphones, and we recorded a podcast episode about kids' ministry, and she was like off the wall, alive, and we had so much fun. That thing has been listened to by so many kids' workers around the world, so I'm excited about having her come, but this morning, I want to talk to you about, I mean, are you, are you bored with God, even just a little bit. Are you like bored maybe with your spiritual life, with with the Bible, with prayer, with like quiet time? It's just kind of boring. You know, you just sit and you read this 2,000-year-old book and then you close your eyes and talk to a person who isn't there. I mean, this is like real exciting, right? I mean, there's this got its challenges, right? I mean, it, let's just be honest. It does, and it's sometimes... We could just get bored with that. We could get bored with church. We could get bored coming. So, so this morning is fun because nobody, we, we, we told the, the greeters and the seaters today that nobody's going to be able to come in and say, well, I usually sit over here. Because no, you don't. You've never sat where you're sitting today. So this has been, this has been fun. But sometimes we get bored with church. And here's where I think, um, boredom comes from. This is just my guess. Um, in fact, I was a youth pastor, believe it or not, for those of you who are teenagers. I, I used to be like young and fun, and now I'm neither. 
But when I was a youth pastor, I took some kids to Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio. How many of you have been to Cedar Point in Sandusky? Yes. In every room this morning, there have been people at Cedar Point. The roller coast, they call it. It's right on Lake Erie. And you get up on some of those high roller coasters, and you're, you're looking down. The lake is right there. It's, it's amazing. Of course, I wouldn't know because I don't go on roller coasters. No. I went on one when I was, in, when I was eight years old, and I went to this park, and the, the church group took us, and Del Alger, his dad owned Alger's hardware store. Del was my youth sponsor who went around the park with me, and I was going to go on the biggest, craziest ride. So I went on the, oh, what did they call it, at Roseland Park. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's this big wooden roller coaster. As soon as it got halfway up the very first hill, click, 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 I was like, I don't like heights. I don't, and I screamed like a girl. I mean, nothing against girls, but I screamed like a girl that whole time. Eight years later, when I was 16, I was there with my girlfriend, and she wanted to go on it. I was like, oh, I'll go on it. I did not want to go on it. I went on it. It was horrible. All I could do was close my eyes and not scream. I mean, I'm with my girlfriend, so I didn't. I managed to not scream. She wanted to go on it again. Somehow I went on it again. It was the last time. 16 years old, what's that? 39 years ago was the last time I've been on a roller coaster. But I would stand at, at the park, and I would watch these roller coasters. I could stand there and watch them all day. I'm fascinated by them. And I'm walking through the park, and I see three of my guys. And they're sitting on a, up at one of the benches. I'm thinking, that, you know, they're just, like, they're just tired. They're just taking a little rest. I said, guys, what, how come you're not going on rides? They're, you know what they said? Oh, we're bored. We're bored. You're at Cedar Point. There's like all kinds of stuff to do. I thought, well, I'm not going to worry if they're ever bored at youth group because if, if they can't be from, come from, if they can't not, I are a public speaker. <laughs> if, if we can't prevent them from being bored at Cedar Point, I won't prevent them from being bored in my youth group. So, you know, we could get bored anywhere, anywhere. Um, and yes, you could get bored with church, with a quiet time, with God. But I think that boredom with God comes from gauging our relationship with Him based on our success at obedience, based on our success at our level of accomplishment and performance as measured by our own standards for ourselves, which, by the way, we seem to never be able to quite live up to. Being bored with God comes about by allowing our relationship with Him to be based on how well we please and obey Him. And it just never seems like we can obey Him well enough to not be bored. We don't want to go to God sometimes because we've just messed up too much and again and again. And when we go to Him, we're just reminded of how much of a failure and a loser we are, and we just don't want to go to Him anymore. And so we avoid Him. We avoid Him and we slip into this Oh, it's boring. I, I, I can't. I'm, I'm detached. I'm disengaged. You can't live up to your own expectations, so you've given up. So what's the antidote for boredom with God? I think it has something to do, this isn't my answer, but I think it has something to do with spiritual, there's no spiritual growth without relational growth. So spiritual growth doesn't come about by information acquisition, by downloading more, more teaching into our brains. 
Spiritual growth doesn't come about by information or education. It comes about through relational growth, through enhanced relationship, through increased intimacy. I think that has something to do with being an antidote for boredom. But Paul writes about some of this. Uh, he writes about the grace, the, the gospel of God's grace, as he calls it. We get bored because we can't live up to what we think God expects of us. When in reality, we're wrong about what we think God expects from us. Paul writes about it in Romans 8, verse 1, where he says, Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who condemns you? Well, the evil one. We know that from the Bible. Who else condemns you? Well, maybe other people. But I think, you know who I think is for, for many of us, for many of us, our biggest condemner? The mirror. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who hates me most of all? You do. You're tougher on yourself than perhaps anybody else. But there's no condemnation because through Christ Jesus, the law of, this is so beautiful, the law of the Spirit who gives life, the law of the Spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Got a mint in my mouth, and I thought I'd swallowed it all, but there's still some in there. So speaking of the law of sin and death, mints. Um, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, by our trying, the law was powerless because we, we, couldn't, we tried, but we couldn't do it in the flesh. God did So God did it. What the law was powerless to do, which was what? Make us righteous. God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, ironically, how ironic is that, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. the righteous requirements of the law, be perfect as I am perfect, that that might be, my my friend from Philly would say, fully, fully met in us. We would be be completely aligned with the righteous requirements of the law. Us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What is living according to the Spirit? You might say, well, it's like doing the right things. It's like living a righteous life. No, no. No, it isn't. Living according to the Spirit is allowing the Spirit of God to live in you and the Spirit of Christ to live out through you. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Living according to the Spirit isn't being perfect. It's being connected to the Spirit of God. It's having the Spirit of God indwell you. It's your Spirit and God's Spirit as one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, um, uh, uh, what does he say? He says, um, but those who unite themselves to the Lord are one spirit. It's like in marriage, you have that one flesh thing going, right? You're, you become one flesh. In that context, it's freaky. He says, but those who unite themselves to the Lord are one spirit. So you think that there's your spirit and the Holy Spirit. no. It's one spirit because it's Christ in us. So that's just the first four verses of Romans 8. 
He goes on and he says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Definition here. Who are we? What's my identity? Children of God. The Spirit you received, it doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. No, rather the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, to becoming a child of God. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. This is heady stuff. This is serious stuff. This is stuff that defines who we are. Not who we think we are, but who we are on our worst day. In Galatians, Paul writes to these believers, and they come to God through faith, by God's grace, but then they start like, oh, but I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to do this to be pleasing to God, and I got to do this to have a relationship with God. And Paul's like, no, no, no. He says, I'm astonished. I'm freaked out, Paul says, that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live, look at this, to live what? What? In the grace of Christ, the spirit that brings life. He wants us to live in the grace of Christ. Our everyday, mundane, day-to-day, Monday through Friday lives, he wants us to live in the grace of Christ. Grace but they're turning to another gospel, a different gospel, which actually, it's no gospel at all. It's not good news at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion, and they're trying to to take the gospel of Christ and pervert it, distort it, change it. Later on in chapter 3, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's It's like you're in some kind of a trance. It's like Elizabeth Montgomery came along and twinkled her nose and now you don't you don't know where you're right from your left anymore older people would get that one um before your very eyes jesus christ was clearly portrayed as crucified why is that important crucified for what for my sins your sins have already been paid for jesus was already crucified he's crucified for your sins They were on him. I would like to learn just one thing from you, Paul says. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Is that how you got the Spirit? Or just by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? When the flesh could never accomplish anything, could never be pleasing to God, only in Christ. He says in chapter 5, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. You stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This distorted, perverted gospel, you're just like, you're just becoming slaves again. To what? To measure up. You better live right. You better get your hair cut and stop smoking and Get your skirt longer and get a tie on and get into church. Don't be drinking or chewing or all the rest of that, whatever else, however else that goes. It all becomes about, yep, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. No, you're not good. You're not good at all. That's the whole point. You don't have to be because Jesus was good for you. Now you can just like be, be in Christ. 
Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, What then shall we say in response to all these things that I've just said? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't even spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will, not he, how will, will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He will graciously give us all things. He didn't even, he didn't even spare his son. You're worried about what he's going to give you? Who's going to bring a charge against those whom God has chosen other than mirror, mirror on the wall? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Look what it says. No one. Nobody. Christ Jesus who died. More than that. More than the fact that he just died. So he paid for your sins. But who rose again? Who defeated death? Who was raised to life? He's at the right hand of God. Look what he's doing. And he's also interceding for us hey that patterson guy he's actually on staff at that church in newton father forgive him he knows not what he does he's got such a great pastor but he just keeps still messing up oh you're in here john i didn't realize you were i thought you were in the other room I you. <laughs> love love you brother love you brother <laughs> um so So he's interceding for us. He's interceding for us. He's at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Stuff that we really don't experience today, but they experienced back then. And he quotes Psalm 44, as it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. The prophets of old were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth. And then he says, nor anything else in all of creation. It's like, if you can come up with it, it is not going to come between you and God. If you can come up with it, it's not going to be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think the antidote for boredom is understanding how crazy God is about us. I think that's the antidote to boredom. So realize, God is crazy about me. He's like, he's like wild about me. He actually loves me. He doesn't condemn me. I am okay. I don't have to be any different than I am now because God loves me. Are we so busy trying to please God that that we can't even realize how crazy about us God already is? That's you know what that's called? Religion. It's called religion. You got to keep doing religion. You just got to keep doing it. And you but you never actually get to the point where you're because there's Sunday's always coming. The if the church doors are open, you get to church. No playing cards in your house either. Just Uno or Rook. Like you better you better start straighten up. And I'm up here to preach against your sin make you feel bad and guilty well i don't know about you but i struggled enough feeling bad and guilty through the week myself i'm glad 
for the cross. I'm glad for the resurrection. I need that. My friend John Lynch wrote these questions to help people determine whether they're living in the grace of a loving God or by the success of their own performance. In this book he wrote, he, he, he has these questions. He says, do I measure my closeness to God by how little I'm sinning? Or by my trust that to the exact extent, extent the Father loves Jesus, Jesus loves me? Do I see myself primarily as a saved sinner or a saint who still sins? When I talk to God, do I spend more time rehearsing my failures or just enjoying his presence? Am I drawn to severe authors and preachers who challenge me to get serious about my sin? Or to those who encourage me to trust this new identity I have in Christ? Am I drawn to messages and lessons telling me I haven't done enough for Jesus? Or am I drawn to those that remind me who I am in Christ, that I'm free to live out this life God's given me? Do I believe that one day I may achieve being pleasing to God? One day I may achieve that. Or am I convinced that I'm already fully changed and fully pleasing to God already? Is my energy and focus spent on being preoccupied with sin or in expressing and receiving love from others? Do I trust spiritual disciplines to make me strong or God's grace to strengthen me? Two more. Do I believe that God is not interested in changing me because he already has? Do I read the Bible as, you ought, you should, why can't you, when will you? Or do I read it as, you can, because this is who you are now? Henry Nouwen is this contemplative who writes really small books that go really, really deep. And he talks about this life of the beloved. And he talks about how, you know what this word is short for? I'm crazy about you. (laughs) You're my beloved. I love you. I'm wild about you. And he writes about how we are the beloved, but we're, we're always becoming the beloved. And he says, how, how do you, how do you become the beloved? And he writes this book about how to bridge the gap between this truth that we know and in the everyday concrete nitty-gritty details of life. Because in the moment of failure, in the moment of angst, we forget that we're loved. In the moment that we fall to temptation yet again, we forget that we're already forgiven, that God is there. So I'm going to read this, but I wrote it. So I'm not reading like from a book. I'm just reading the words that I wrote. Because this is what, this is what I try to do uh, because just like you, I have to deal with the reality of being a sinner. So try to imagine this. Right after a failure, another yielding to temptation, yet another time that you sin, imagine, imagine standing there staring at your pile of ugliness. 
you feel defeated, broken, unworthy, and like a complete failure for God. And there in front of you is all your sin. Now try to imagine Jesus standing right next to you. Now this part I got from my friend John. But I've thought about this and I've, and I've, I've worked this out in my mind so many times. Try to imagine Jesus standing right next to you with his arm around you. He's looking at the same pile of ugliness. He sees your sin. And with his arm around you, he tightens his grip. But you lower your head because you're ashamed, because you know you're guilty. But as you lower your head out of the corner of your eye, you see him turn his head. And you know that he's looking at you. And slowly and reluctantly, you raise your head toward him. And you face him and you make eye contact. But you're surprised. Because his eyes that you thought would be judging are just filled with love. More love than you've seen. He says, so what he says to you, he says, keep looking at me. Look me in the eye and hear what I'm saying to you. And believe. Looking at the pile, he says, I know. I've known from before the world began, and I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not angry. I'm wild about you. It's why I died on the cross and why I rose, to defeat this sin and death. This, he says, motioning to your pile, this is nothing. This is nothing my blood can't wipe away. You think my work on the cross can't take care of this? I know your temptations. I know your thoughts, and believe me, I know your sins. And I want you to know that I'm with you and in you by my Spirit. I've got your back. I'm here. I love you. Nothing you do can separate you from my love. Nothing. You and me, we're going to work on this together. When you're ready, we'll work on it. This this pile doesn't define you. I define you. Your sin doesn't define you. I define you, he says. And I have defined you. You're my beloved child, my holy and righteous child. You stand with me without guilt, without shame, because I'm absolutely crazy about you. Don't you waste your time focusing on this pile. You keep your eyes on me. I've got your back. I'm with you. And I'm never going to leave you. So if it feels uncomfortable to view God that way, why? So many times in the New Testament, so many times, God describes all of those feelings, all of those thoughts toward you and, and, and intentions about you, so many times. So it might be time to risk believing that what Jesus did on the cross purchased not only heaven, but this scene as well, this relationship, this unmerited affection. Understanding his love this way is intended to give you permission to trust his love every moment of every day for the rest of your life. So have you been bored with God? Just know that he's crazy about you, that he loves you that nothing you can do can ever ever separate you from his love. 
Would you stand with me? We're going to close in prayer. I want to just challenge you this week. Challenge you. Go back to Romans chapter 8. Read that chapter. Understand that God wants you and God loves you. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the truth of grace, for the truth of mercy, that you are merciful to us, sinners whom you've turned into saints. God, help us uh, this week to love others. And in loving others, understand that you love us as we love others, God. Help us to know that you have infinitely more of those kinds of feelings about us, that we are loved by you. And living in that love is how we actually walk away from sin. Help us to do that this week, Lord. We love you. We thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.